come out for a second. Um, that is the first book in the New Testament. If you're in Mark, you're too far. Um, sorry, bad youth pastor joke. It typically happens every Monday, um, helping kids find books of the Bible. Um, if you can't find Matthew, I still love you, okay? It's going to be okay. So Matthew 23. And we, we had the sermon schedule, I guess, earlier in the year. And I, I talked to Pastor Dan and Pastor Dave about this particular Sunday and, and what that was going to be about. And I had this kind of tagline um, the entire time, okay? I had this recurring theme I just kept thinking about. And and I'll say this, I'm usually not one for sermon titles, but um, today I'm going to give you my sermon title, Servant Leaders Are the Real Deal, okay? So uh, so we're not going to dress it up, okay? Servant Leaders Are the Real Deal. That's the title of today's sermon. And I've noticed throughout my life that you recognize the real deal when you see it. And you recognize when something is not the real deal. So, for example, something I enjoy doing, um, my wife and I, we love going down to New York City. And if you like shopping, like there's all these shops on Fifth Avenue, and, and you can find a way, let's be honest, to waste a lot of money really, really quickly. So that's not the part I like. What I like is seeing these expensive stores. I like seeing the guy outside of the store with a little table set up, and he's selling his, old, his own stuff outside of the store. Okay. So talking about the real deal. So imagine you see a North Face store, and there's a guy outside selling North Face jackets. The beautiful thing, if you don't want it to say North Face and you want it to say like Nike or something like that, he can rip North Face right off the jacket, <laughs> and he can put Nike right on the jacket. It's a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. Here's what's not so wonderful. You buy the jacket... It gets to January, you're freezing to death, and you realize, you know what, this jacket is not the real deal. It's not what I thought it was going to be. I remember when I was in college, um, our school opened up a brand new gym. It had all these basketball courts, and so a group of us, we would go down a couple times a week to play basketball. There was always this one guy wearing a game-worn jersey, probably $200 sneakers, and he would talk trash the entire time. You guys are terrible. Just wait till I get on the court. I'm going to show you what... And he would get on the court, and as lovingly and as graciously as I could say it this morning, he was terrible. (laughs) He was off. So he talked as if he was really great, but he got out there and he wasn't the real deal. Let's get serious for a moment. Maybe um, you've seen people throughout your life and you've said, man, they've got the perfect marriage. They've got the perfect family. And then you find out about the affair. You find out about the divorce. Maybe it's somebody you grew up with in youth group, and you said, man, they really seem on fire for God. And now you see them in their 20s and their 30s, and they've gotten so far away, so far away from God and his word. Servant leaders are the real deal, and I I believe God is inviting us to be the real deal in our character and in our faith. So today, in Matthew chapter 23, Um, It's kind of a warning. It's kind of a severe passage. Um, Your Bible, if you were to look at it, it might have a heading at the top of the chapter, and it might say something like, seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. So, So Jesus, for lack of a better term, he's calling out the Pharisees throughout this chapter. So we're gonna focus on these first few verses, but before we do that, an important thing to note, the Pharisees were really kind of the religious elite of their day. They were the leaders. 
They were scholars. They knew a lot about God. But yet, Jesus has some pretty sharp words for them. So I'm going to read this passage. um, And then let's take a moment to pray and to ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Lord, so much that we can gather here on a Sunday morning. And um, God, this morning, we don't need um, a bunch of stories or illustrations. We need you to speak through your word this morning. We need a fresh encounter with you. So God, I pray that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring conviction. God, ultimately, that you would raise us up as servant leaders. God, that we would be the real deal in our own lives. God, not because of us, but because of Jesus. So we ask all these things in your name. Amen. So it's, it's kind of an awkward conversation throughout these 40 or so verses. We're just going to focus on the first three. Um, it, it's kind of an awkward, kind of a very direct conversation, if you think about it. I mean, even the title, Seven Woes to the Scribes and Pharisees, um, I, I can't ever imagine talking like, to, like that to somebody today. Like, hey, I have seven woes for you that I need to talk to you about. Jesus gets right to the point with the Pharisees. And so there's a few things we learn about leadership, about life, about God himself through this interaction. So I want to point out the first thing. Um, The Pharisees, we would say, they valued the position of leadership over the lifestyle of leadership. They valued the position of leadership over the lifestyle of leadership. And that's a very, very different thing. So if you notice in Matthew 23, one of the first phrases in verse 2, the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And this is a reference back to Exodus 18. And in that passage, basically it's talking about the authority and the teaching role that Moses had over Israel. So they sat in the seat. They had the authority. um, They enjoyed having the authority. um, And as we would see through the rest of this passage, they, they probably enjoyed having this authority a little too much. But they loved that position of authority without having the lifestyle of a servant leader. You know, I was thinking about just this idea of a position of authority, and um, probably a couple months ago, it was on a Monday night, so we had a youth group, and we, we typically start the night, like, upstairs or outside, and then we move into the youth room. And so I get to the youth room, and one of our youth is sitting in the stool where I normally teach from. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, Chris, I want to be you for the night. And my heart, yeah, somebody just like, yeah, somebody just sighed. I did the same thing. My heart like, was like, oh, somebody wants to follow in my footsteps. I'm doing something right. Um, and just as I got excited about that, um, they said to me, Chris, I just kind of want to be in charge and tell people what to do. So like, I want to be you <laughs> for the night. And what I appreciated about that statement is honesty. Because how hard is it for some, sometimes for us to be honest? So if we're honest today, each of us would probably say, we want to be in charge of our own lives. Okay. So maybe you're married and you say, man, I just want my spouse to be this way. Maybe you have kids, you're like, I wish my kids just behaved 
this way. You know, maybe you look at your finances, man, I really just wish I made this much money. I'm only making this much right now. I really wish I had the stuff that that person has over there. They've got a nicer house, a nicer car, they go on better vacations. I really want all that stuff. And we come back to it and we say, we just want to be in charge of our own lives. Something that's become a life verse for me is Proverbs 16, 9. It says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So there's this idea, as much as we want to be in charge, as much as we want to call the shots, as much as maybe we want to tell God, hey, this is how things should go, we've got to trust him. That takes humility. And that's something the Pharisees lacked. They loved that position of leadership. They loved casting a burden on the people of Israel. But they didn't have the lifestyle of a leader. And so you might say, okay, so what does a lifestyle of a leader look like? And, you know, you might say, it looks like somebody who can speak really well. It looks like somebody who can rally the troops for action to do something. It sounds like somebody who's inspiring. And, and it's funny because if you think about the life of Jesus, it's exactly the opposite. So John 10, 11 describes Jesus this way. Jesus says this about himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This flies in the face of pretty much everything we know about leadership. This flies in the face of the way the Pharisees leaded, of how they led. That's right, English, right? Okay. Of how they led. It flies in the face of that. The Pharisees loved the authority. They loved being in charge. But were they willing to lay their lives down? Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says it this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Focus on that phrase, empty himself. Giving himself up on our behalf. Most leaders would not, I would say almost all leaders would not do this for you. The Pharisees sure would not do this for you. Jesus is the better servant leader in that he does this for us. There's a pastor I really admire. His name's Matt Chandler. Um, and he puts it this way that I really like. Really the only leader in human history without a Messiah complex was our Messiah. <laughs> Think of it that way. The only leader in human history without a Messiah complex was our Messiah. It's so counterculture. It's so the opposite of what any other leader would do. He gives himself up. Well, the Pharisees make it harder on everybody else. Jesus gives himself up. The Pharisees desired the position of leadership. Jesus shows us the posture of servant leadership. There's a huge difference. When you lead out of that posture, when you lead your homes, when you lead in the workplace, when you lead in your small groups, wherever you lead, when you lead out of that posture, there is much to be done in the name of Jesus. So Trinity, think about this this morning. Are you a leader who's known more for your position, more for your title, and what you bring to the table? Or are you a leader who's known for your humility, who daily gets before Jesus, 
who daily meets with him and is shaped by him. So the Pharisees value the position of leadership over the lifestyle of leadership. The next thing we'll see, the Pharisees had a right knowledge about God, but they lacked a right heart for God. Or it could be said this way, um, they had a lot of information about God, but they lacked transformation from God himself. So back in the passage, verse 3 says this, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. You know, I heard a story one time. um, A pastor was driving down the highway um, with somebody in his car, and, you know, it was the two of them driving. The speed limit said one thing, and, you know, let's just call a spade a spade. A lot like most of us, we went a little bit over the speed limit. Um, My father, we would call it driving with the flow of traffic. Um, so, So, you know, he was driving with the flow of traffic, and the guy sitting next to him said, Pastor, I noticed that the speed limit says 65, and you're going over that. And I think the Bible tells us we're supposed to obey the law. So, Pastor, would you say that you're in sin right now? The pastor sat there, and he thought to himself, and he answered, You know what? I am a sinner in dire need of the grace of God. Think about that. I'm a sinner in dire need of the grace of God. He said, don't focus on what I'm doing. Just do what I tell you to do. Okay? Just do what I tell you. Don't focus on Just do what I tell you to do. And maybe you've experienced a leader like that, that they tell you to do one thing, but in fact, they're doing another. So Jesus focuses on this one statement. So do what they tell you, but not what they say. And here's why he says that. If you think about the Pharisees, there were a lot of religious groups in that era, a lot of them. The Pharisees had what we would say is a conservative view of the Old Testament. They believed it was the word of God. They valued it really, really highly. So more than any other religious group in that era, Jesus had more in common with the Pharisees than any other group. It's a good start. It's a really good start. It's not so great an ending. While they had more in common Um, they missed the biggest point of all, which was Jesus himself. So if you remember back to January, we went through a series on non-negotiable absolutes. We talked about what things are core to our faith. And one of the things that we talked about was grace. Grace is absolutely core, and I would say grace is the one thing, was the main thing that these Pharisees missed. They made it all about the law. They even added on more laws on top of the laws of the Old Testament, expected people to keep them while they couldn't, and they missed grace. And so um, we would say, you know, the Sunday school answer of grace, man, unmerited favor given by God. Unmerited favor given by God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. This was hard for the Pharisees. This was hard because they're bringing to the table all of their accomplishments and all of their knowledge. They were coming to God saying, you know what? I have it all together. I know the right stuff. Why would I need to do anything else? Look at that person over there. They don't know as much as I do. They're not as accomplished as I am. But they missed grace. 
they miss the fact that each and every one of us, dead in our own sins and trespasses, missing the mark, missing the standard that God has set for us. And unfortunately, they missed the loving God who sends his son Jesus, who lavishes that grace on each and every single one of us and just asked that we believe. They had a right knowledge about God. They needed to be transformed by God. They had good information. They needed transformation. Jesus is the better servant leader who wants us to have a knowledge about him, but wants us to live with him and for him. It's a both end. It's a head knowledge, but then it's our hearts. It's shaping our character. It's the way that we live our lives. It's the way that we choose to honor Jesus in that. Information is important, but transformation is ultimately what we need. So I love, I love just the story of Paul, Saul becoming Paul, Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Because you see a night and day difference from how he was before he meets Jesus and what his life is like after he meets Jesus. So there's a few verses at the end of that story. In Acts 9, 20 through 22, it says this. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So if we were to summarize this, um, a group of people would look at Paul and kind of say, hey, weren't you the guy that was like kind of anti-Christian? You were sending them to jail. You were part of like some of them being murdered. Like what happened? What happened in your life that now like you're part of this weird Christian group that's going around and preaching the gospel and planting churches? Like what happened you seek almost immediate fruit, an immediate change in the life of Paul. He had information. He was a Pharisee. He knew a lot of stuff. But you see, he had information. You get to see a transformation once he has an encounter with Jesus. Once he has a true encounter with Jesus, his life is not the same. There is a stark difference in how he lives. I love meeting with our youth for baptisms because I describe it as almost like a three-act play. So act one is what was your life like before you met Jesus? Act two is how did you meet Jesus? What did that look like? Where were you? You know, was there something that was said that kind of struck your heart? Who was there with you? Was there someone who prayed with you? And then there's act three. What does life look like now because of Jesus? Where's the change? Where's the hope? And we see this so clearly in the life of Paul. There's immediate fruit. There's immediate change. And everybody's talking about it. Like, Paul, what happened? You used to be this way, and now you're this way. I got to see a true-to-life Saul to Paul testimony. Um, it was my last year working at Liberty University. Um, they brought in Daryl Strawberry to come speak. And I remember um, watching baseball growing up, and I just remember they announced Daryl Strawberry, and my immediate thought was, 
is this a mistake? Like, do they know who they invited? Like, what's he going to talk about? Like, how's this going to go? Because I just remember as a kid hearing Daryl Strawberry arrested. Daryl Strawberry drugs. Daryl Strawberry this. Daryl Strawberry that. And so almost 20 years later, I'm watching this man speak. And he admitted, you know, hey, throughout my life, I've strayed from God. I've done things that have not honored God. I've walked away from God. But I watched as he preached the gospel. I watched him just pray with students. I watched him give counsel. And it was almost like these verses in Acts chapter 9 we just read of, Daryl, what happened? This is not the Daryl Strawberry I knew as a kid. I mean, praise God, it's not the Daryl Strawberry I knew as a kid. And I see him now going around from place to place, speaking about the things God brought him through and how he got to the moment where he responded to Jesus really intervening in his life. The Pharisees had the information. They didn't have transformation. And that was the thing that they really needed. So the challenge for us, do we love God with both our, our heads, our minds, and our hearts? I find that most people swing one way or the other. They have really maybe an academic knowledge about God. They have a lot of facts about God. But are they seeking God regularly and daily? Or maybe you have a very like touchy-feely, like emotional, um, you know, kind of vague idea about God, but you don't really know much about him. Getting in his word, you're going to get to know him a lot better. We need to love God with our hearts and our minds the information is great. We all need transformation. And I would even say that transformation happens at salvation, but it is continually happening while we're on this earth. We are continually being transformed. We are continually being made to look like Jesus himself. So the Pharisees had a right knowledge about God, but they didn't have a right heart for God. They needed transformation and they missed grace. So back in our passage we'll see that the Pharisees wanted an appearance of holiness without the pursuit of holiness. They wanted to look a certain way without pursuing holiness itself. And so the last part of verse 3 says this, for they preach, but they do not practice. So they're one way in public, but they do not practice. There was a fascinating book that came out. This is probably almost eight or nine years ago um, called The Unlikely Disciple. Okay. And so this book, there was a student at Brown University in Rhode Island, and he decided that he wanted to infiltrate Christian culture. And so he enrolled um, at Liberty University, my senior year of college. Um, I was really afraid I was going to appear in the book somehow. Thankfully, I didn't. Um, that's a side note. Um, but he decided, you know what, I, I'm going to enroll. I'm going to do kind of a social experiment. And so here's what he did. He learned the songs. He wore, like, the T-shirts. He went to some of the camps. He learned all of the lingo. And so he appeared a certain way. Um, I'll say one of the cool results of this book, he went in trying to say, man, Christians are really judgmental and they're mean-spirited. Um, and he actually found out, man, some of them are kind of cool and like they were really gracious and they invited me places and they were nice and all these things. But here was a guy who was able to infiltrate a church, a college. 
He was able to put on an appearance. He knew the right things to say. He knew the right way to act. But yet, he wasn't pursuing God on his own. And here's the rub in that. Here's the challenge in that. How often do we do the same thing? We look a certain way in front of people because, you know, if we really say what we're feeling, or we really say what we're going through, um, man, they might look at us a different way, so we're just going to hold back a little bit. And we just try to put on this pious exterior really to mask what's really going on. Interestingly enough, Jesus talks very directly about this in a few different places in Matthew. One of them um, is in a passage we would call the Lord's Prayer passage. So in Matthew chapter 6, before we get to our Father, Jesus talks to his disciples about prayer. And he talks about this attitude, this religious attitude that a lot of people have. And he says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. So here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that you can't ever pray in public. He's not saying you can't ever pray in public. But the key phrase in these verses is the phrase, so they may be seen by others. Again, it's that appearance of holiness without the pursuit of holiness. Wanting to look a certain way, really just to impress others. And when we do that, we know a lot of things in our lives can go unaddressed. When we're just trying to look a certain way, we're trying to put on a face for other people. So like I mentioned about this passage of Matthew 23, there are several sharp rebukes that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. But he gives this one in verse 25 and 26 that touches on this topic. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So again, a great-looking exterior. The cup is clean on the outside. It's good to use, right? Absolutely not. You would not take a cup that looked great on the outside, turn it over, see mold and stuff like that growing inside of it, and say, you know what? I think that looks great for my coffee. I think it looks great for my water. Um, that, that sounds like a stupid youth group game to me, but like, it's not something you would normally do. You would look at it and say, man, that needs to be cleaned. Because it's the same way in our lives. We put on a front, we tell people we're doing fine, we tell people everything's going okay, but you tip the cup over, you ask some of the tough questions, and you realize, you know what, not everything is going okay. So that's the appearance of holiness, but let's talk about what does the pursuit of holiness then look like? And I'd like to think of it, you know, small groups are a good litmus test for this. Um, I, I like to think, you know, there's usually one person in every small group, and um, if you're saying, you know what, I don't think we have that person in your small group, spoiler alert, it might be you. Um, <laughs> I love you, but it might be you. Um, and you might say something when it comes to prayer request time, like, you know, you just need to pray for me. 
I only spent an hour in God's word today, and I need to spend two hours in God's word, and me being the skeptic saying, that's not a real prayer request. That is the appearance of holiness, not the pursuit of holiness. So let's get real for a second. Here's what the pursuit of holiness looks like. It's small group. It comes to prayer request time. You know, guys, maybe it's a group of all men, um, and you start to say, you know what? If you were to look at my internet history, I've not honored God this week. If you were to look at my finances, I've not honored God this week. If you were to look at the way I treated my spouse, my kids, I've not honored God this week. And here's the great thing. That's the pursuit of holiness because you're coming before God. You're coming before his people. And in that, you find healing. I've heard this phrase before. We are wounded in isolation, but we find healing in community. So ask yourself this question. Um, what would you be willing, or maybe what would you not be willing to share with your small group? And if you'd say, Chris, not my entire small group, hey, I get it, but maybe one or two other believers, maybe a believer who can sharpen you, who can say the right thing at the right time in grace and in love. What would it take for you to tip that cup over, to tip that dirty cup over, to show someone else what's really going on and to let them in. The great thing about Jesus, he wants to be in our mess. Okay, so he, he wants to be in our mess. He's rebuking the Pharisees for pretending like there was nothing going on. He wants to be in your mess today, Trinity, okay? Whatever that is, he's, he's not going to be shocked by it. But he wants to get in your mess. That's an encouragement because we all have that mess. We all have that something going on. And Jesus wants to be present in the mess if you'll let him. If you'll let him, he'll come in, he'll do the work, he'll start that work of transformation, he'll bring the church alongside of you to help in that work. If you'll let him in, he'll transform you. Again, that is why he is a better servant leader than these Pharisees he rebukes. So, um, let's get real for a moment. Not that the rest has been fake, but let's get real for a moment. So you might say, Chris, that sounds great on paper, but like in real life, it's kind of hard. And um, you know what? I would agree. I would agree. Um, but here's one of the crazy things. Your pursuit of holiness is going to be one of the best ways that you witness. So um, I've read a few books um, and seen a few studies about the millennial generation and church. And so um, I'm on... I'm slowly moving out of that, of that age bracket. Um, I don't want to talk about that, but I'm slowly moving out of that age bracket. I just turned 33, but I've read some studies. Somebody clapped. That's cool. Like, um, <laughs> but I've read some studies um, about why millennials are leaving the church. Okay. Um, and if you would say, okay, it's maybe not that many people. Um, the studies would say it's somewhere between 60 and 80% of millennials who grew up going to church, that once they approach the college years, their 20s or 30s, um, they leave and they're not coming back. Okay. That is a high, high number. And um, a lot of these people who do these studies, they have a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of different reasons on um, why people get into this. So I just want to talk about one today because I think it ties very closely to our topic. Their heroes have let them down. Their heroes have let them down. Um, and when I say their heroes have let them down, I'm talking about those within the church. 
I'm talking about those people within the church who have the appearance of holiness but aren't pursuing holiness. If you've been following the news for the past year, you've seen um, the rise of the Me Too movement. And at first, it just started with, you know what, there's this guy in Hollywood, and like we know that Hollywood's kind of corrupt, so like nobody's really surprised. And you know, actors started coming out and like all these other things. But slowly and surely, Me Too became Church Too. So think about that. Slowly but surely, Me Too became Church Too. A couple of months ago, I was reading a story in the New York Times. A lady now in her late 30s um, reflecting back on her time in youth group. And, you know, she loved her youth pastor. He was her hero. Her dad was not in her life. He became a father. And that all came crashing down the moment he sexually assaulted her. And so here she is all these years later, reflecting on a national publication in a video seen by millions giving her account of how her hero let her down. About a year ago, I was at a conference um, with some people on staff here at Trinity, um, and I heard a pastor give a testimony about putting family first. And I remember being like so touched by this message I got home that night. Jess and I had a long conversation that was really good. I was so encouraged. And then a few months go by, Chicago Tribune article. You know, this pastor, multiple women, sexual, unwanted sexual advances, affairs, anything you could think of was named in this article. My heart broke. My heart broke. I would encourage you with this. The failures of that generation do not have to be the failures of the next generation. And so here's what I say about that. Church, we need you. We need you. Okay. Our youth need to see adults living out their faith, living for Jesus faithfully. They need that. Parents, your kids need you. Okay. They might say they need an Xbox or vacation. They need you to open God's word with them. They need you to pray with them. They need you to make church the priority. They need you to make the name of Jesus a priority in your home. They need you. Every single one of us, we need you to not let the next generation suffer the failures of this past generation. We need you, church. We need you. And we know because God gives us his spirit, we're not doing it on our own. We're not doing it on our own. Each and every single one of us has a gift. Each and every single one of us has that testimony. Each and every single one of us can help shape the next generation. So church, we need you. To be a servant leader is to be led by Jesus himself first. So what would it take? What would it take for you to invest um, in the office? Because you might say, you know what, I'm not a leader in our church. That's fine. You're a leader in your home. You are a leader in the workplace. You are a leader in your neighborhood. What would it take for you to pursue holiness? What would it take to not put on the appearance of holiness like the Pharisees did, but to pursue holiness, to pursue Jesus on a daily basis? So we started today by saying, you know what? Servant leaders are the real deal. Okay. The real deal. They don't put on a front. They don't put on a facade. They're not the Pharisees who say one thing and do another. 
But being the real deal as a servant leader starts with getting on our face before God each and every day. Apart from that, we can't, we can't lead. We can't serve. We can't do any of these things. And so I want to read Psalm 24, a few verses from there real quick. And this is a time, I would say, we would call it spiritual inventory. Okay, so I'm going to read these verses. And as I read them, um, just ask yourself the question, is this true about me? Do I seek God on a daily basis? Psalm 24, starting in verse 3 down through verse 6, says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has, a clean, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Trinity, this morning, are you seeking him? Are you seeking his face? Are you putting on a front or are you honest before God? That holiness part is tough, but when we're honest, God comes in and he does the work. So today, if you're not seeking him, that can change today. So I'm going to pray in a moment um, and the band is going to come up and we're going to sing a response song called Give Us Clean Hands that comes right out of the psalm I just read. And I would just... I would encourage you, continue to mull that question over in your mind. Are you seeking him? Are you the real deal or do you need to get on your face before God? Does he need to come in and do the work of transformation? Let's pray. Jesus, you tell us in, in John 15, God, apart from you, we can do nothing. And God, we are aware of that fact. God, we are very aware of our need for you. So Lord, allow us to humble ourselves each and every day. God, knowing that you'll give us the strength, that you give us the power. God, I pray right now that you would raise up servant leaders in our church. God, not so we can run more programs. God, not so we can do more things. But God, that we can make more disciples. God, that we could build more people up to be followers of you. God, that we could advance your kingdom here in Fairfield County. So Jesus, we commit all of these things to you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.